Chapter Twenty, Part Two of Run to Earth, a novel, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. Chapter Twenty, Part Two, On Guard. The information acquired by Andrew Larkspur was perfectly correct. An intimacy and companionship had arisen between Douglas Dale and his cousin Reginald Eversleigh and the two men spent much of their time together. Douglas Dale was still the same simple-minded, true-hearted young man that he had been before his uncle Oswald's death endowed him with an income of five thousand a year. But with the accession of wealth, the necessity for industry ceased, and instead of a hard-working student, Douglas became one of the upper million, who have nothing to think of but the humor of the moment. Now Alpine tourist, now Norwegian angler, anon idler in clubs and drawing-rooms, anon book-collector, or amateur literateur. He still occupied chambers in the temple. He still called himself a barrister, but he had no longer any desire to succeed at the bar. His brother Lionel had become rector of Hallgrove, a village in Dorsetshire, where there was a very fine old church and a very small congregation. It was one of those fat livings which seem only to fall to the lot of rich men. Lionel had the tastes of a typical country gentleman, and he found ample leisure to indulge in his favorite amusement of hunting, after having conscientiously discharged his duties. The poor of Hallgrove had good reason to congratulate themselves on the fact that their rector was a rich man. Mr. Dale's charities seemed almost boundless to his happy parishioners. The rectory was a fine old house, situated in one of those romantic spots which one scarcely hopes to see out of a picture. Hill, wood, and water combined to make the beauty of the landscape, and, amid verdant woods and fields, the old red-brick mansion looked the perfection of an English homestead. It had been originally a manor-house, and some portions of it were very old. Douglas Dale called Hallgrove the Happy Valley, Neither of the brothers had yet married, and the barrister paid frequent visits to the rector. He was glad to find repose after the fatigue and excitement of London life. Like his brother, he delighted in the adventures and perils of the hunting field, and he was rarely absent from Hallgrove during the hunting season. In London he had his clubs and the houses of friends. The manoeuvring mamas of the West End were very glad to welcome Mr. Dale at their parties, he might have danced with the prettiest girls in London every night of his life, had he pleased. To an unmarried man, with unlimited means and no particular occupation, the pleasures of a life of fashionable amusement are apt to grow weary, flat, stale, and unprofitable after a certain time. Douglas Dale was beginning to be very tired of balls and dinner parties, flower shows and morning concerts, when he happened to meet his cousin Reginald Eversleigh at a club to which both men belonged. Eversleigh could make himself very agreeable when he chose, and on this occasion he exerted himself to the utmost to produce a good impression upon the mind of Douglas Dale. Hitherto Douglas had not liked his cousin Reginald, but he now began to fancy that he had been prejudiced against his kinsman. He felt that Reginald had some reason to consider himself ill-used, and, with the impulsive kindness of a generous nature, he was ready to extend the hand of friendship to a man who had been beaten in the battle of life. The two men dined together at their club. They met again and again, 
sometimes by accident, sometimes by appointment. The club was one at which there was a good deal of quiet gambling amongst scientific whist players, but until his meeting with Reginald Eversleigh, Douglas Dale had never been tempted to take part in a rubber. His habits changed gradually under the influence of his cousin and Victor Carrington. He consented to take a hand at a carte after dinner on one day, on another day to join at a whist party. Three months after his first meeting with Reginald, he accompanied the baronet to Hilton House, where he was introduced to the beautiful Austrian widow. Sir Reginald Eversleigh played his cards very cautiously. It was only after he had instilled a taste for gambling into his kinsman's breast that he ventured to introduce him to the fashionable gaming-house presided over by Paulina Dursky. The introduction had a sinister effect upon his destiny. He had passed unscathed through the furnace of London life. Many women had sought to obtain power over him, but his heart was still in his own keeping when he first crossed the threshold of Hilton House. He saw Paulina Dursky and loved her. He loved her from the very first with a deep and faithful affection, as far above the selfish fancy of Reginald Eversleigh as the heaven is above the earth. But she was no longer mistress of her heart. That was given to the man whose baseness she knew, and whom she loved despite her better reason. Sir Reginald speedily discovered the state of his cousin's feelings. He had laid his plans for this result. Douglas Dale, as the adoring slave of Madame Dursky, would be an easy dupe, and much of Sir Oswald's wealth might yet enrich his disinherited nephew. Victor Carrington looked on and shared his spoils, but he watched Eversleigh's schemes with a half-contemptuous air. "'You think you are doing wonders, my dear Reginald,' he said, "'and certainly by means of Mr. Dale's losses you and I contrive to live, "'to say nothing of our dear Madame Dursky, who comes in for her share of the plunder. "'But after all, what is it, a few hundred more or less, at the best? "'I think you may by and by play a better and deeper game than that, Reginald,' and I think I can show you how to play it. "'I do not want to be mixed up in any more of your schemes,' answered Sir Reginald. "'I have had enough of them. What have they done for me?' The two men were seated in Sir Reginald's dingy sitting-room in Villiers Street when this conversation took place. They were sitting opposite to each other, with a little table between them. Victor Carrington rested his folded arms upon the table, and leaned across them, looking full in the face of his companion. "'Look you, Reginald Eversleigh,' he said. "'Because I have failed once, there is no reason that I am to fail always. The devil himself conspired against me last time, but the day will come when I shall have the devil on my side. It is yet on the cards for you to become owner of ten thousand a year, and it shall be my business to make you owner of that income. "'Stay, Carrington!' "'Do you think I would permit? I ask your permission for nothing. "'I know you to be a weak and wavering coward, "'who of your own volition would never rise from the level "'of a ruined spendthrift and penniless vagabond. "'You forget, perhaps, that I hold a bond "'which gives me an interest in your fortunes. "'I do not forget. "'When my own wisdom counsels action, I shall act, "'without asking your advice. "'If I am successful, you will thank me.' If I fail, you will reproach me for my folly. That is the way of the world. And now let us change the subject. 
when do you go down to dorsetshire with your cousin douglas dale why do you ask me that question my curiosity is only prompted by a friendly interest in your welfare and that of your relations you are going to hunt with lionel dale are you not yes he has invited me to spend the remainder of the hunting season with him at his brother's request i believe precisely i have not met lionel since since my uncle's funeral as you know sir reginald pronounced these last words with considerable hesitation douglas spends christmas with his brother and douglas wishes me to join the party in order to gratify this wish lionel has written me a very friendly letter inviting me down to hallgrove rectory and i have accepted the invitation nothing could be more natural there is some talk of your buying a hunter for lionel is there not by the by yes they know i am a tolerable judge of horseflesh and douglas wishes me to get his brother a good mount for the winter when is the animal to be chosen asked victor carelessly immediately we go down to hallgrove next week i shall select the horse whenever i can get douglas to go with me to the dealers and send him down to get used to his new quarters before his hard work begins good let me know when you are going to the horse dealers but if you see me there take no notice of me beyond a nod and be careful not to attract douglas dale's attention to me or introduce me to him what do you mean by that asked reginald looking suspiciously at his companion what should i mean except what i say i do not see how even your imagination can fancy any dark meaning lurking beneath the commonplace desire to waste an afternoon in a visit to a horse-dealer's yard my dear carrington forgive me exclaimed reginald i am irritable and impatient i cannot forget the misery of those last days at raynham yes answered victor carrington the misery of failure no more was said between the two men the sway which the powerful intellect of the surgeon exercised over the weaker nature of his friend was omnipotent reginald eversleigh feared victor carrington and there was something more than this ever-present fear in his mind there was the lurking hope that by means of carrington's scheming he should yet obtain the wealth he had forfeited the conversation above recorded took place on the day after mr larkspur's interview with honoria three days afterwards reginald eversleigh and his cousin met at the club for the purpose of going together to inspect the hunters on sale at mr spavin's repository in the brompton road dale's mail phaeton was waiting before the door of the club and he drove his cousin down to the repository mr spavin was one of the most fashionable horse-dealers of that day a man who could not afford to give a handsome price had but a small chance of finding himself suited at mr spavin's repository for a poor customer the horse-dealer felt nothing but contempt half a dozen horsey-looking men came out of the stables loose boxes and harness-rooms to attend upon the gentleman whose dashing mail phaeton and stylish groom commanded the respect of the whole yard the great mr spavin himself emerged from his counting-house to ask the pleasure of his customers carriage horses sir or hacks he asked that's a very fine pair in the break yonder if you want anything showy for a mail phaeton they've been exercising in the park all blood sir and not an ounce too much bone a pair of horses that would do credit to a duke reginald asked to see mr spavin's hunters 
and the grooms and keepers were soon busy trotting out noble-looking creatures for the inspection of the three gentlemen there was a tan gallop at the bottom of the yard and up and down this the animals were paraded douglas dale was much interested in the choice of the horse which he intended to present to his brother and he discussed the merits of the different hunters with sir reginald eversleigh whose eye had lighted within a minute of their entrance upon victor carrington the surgeon stood at a little distance from them absorbed by the scene before him but it was to be observed that his attention was given less to the horses than the men who brought them out of their boxes at one of these men he looked with peculiar intensity and this man was certainly not calculated to attract the observation of a stranger by any personal advantages of his own he was a wizened little man with red hair a bullet-shaped head and small rat-like eyes this man had very little to do with the display of the horses but once when there was a pause in the business he opened the door of a loose box went in and presently emerged leading a handsome bay whose splendid head was reared in a defiant attitude as the fiery eyeballs surveyed the yard isn't that wild buffalo asked mr spavin yes sir then you ought to know better than to bring him out exclaimed the horse-dealer angrily these gentlemen want a horse that a christian can ride and the buffalo isn't fit to be ridden by a christian not yet a while at any rate i mean to take the devil out of him before i've done with him though added mr spavin casting a vindictive glance at the horse he is rather a handsome animal said sir reginald eversleigh oh yes he's handsome enough answered the dealer his looks are no discredit to him but handsome is as handsome does that's my motto and if i'd known the temper of that beast when captain chesterley offered him to me i'd have seen the captain farther before i consented to buy him however there he is i've got him and i must make the best of him but jack spavin is not the man to sell such a beast to a customer until the wickedness is taken out of him when the wickedness is taken out of him he'll be at your service gentlemen with jack spavin's best wishes the horse was taken back to his box victor watched the animal and the groom with an intensely earnest gaze as they disappeared from his sight that's a curious-looking fellow that groom of yours sir reginald said to the horse-dealer what hawkins jim hawkins yes his looks won't make his fortune he's a hard-working fellow enough in his way but he's something like the horse in the matter of temper but i think i've taken the devil out of him said mr spavin with an ominous crack of his heavy riding-whip more horses were brought out examined discussed and taken back to their boxes mr spavin knew he had to deal with a good customer and he wished to show off the resources of his stable bring out niagara he said presently and in a few minutes a groom emerged from one of the stables leading a magnificent bay now gentlemen said mr spavin that animal is own brother to wild buffalo and if it had not been for my knowledge of that animal's merits i should never have bought the buffalo now there's apt to be a good deal of difference between human beings of the same family but perhaps you'd hardly believe the difference there can be between horses of the same blood that animal is as sweet a temper as you'd wish to have in a horse and buffalo is a devil yet if you were to see the two horses side by side you'd scarcely know which was which indeed exclaimed sir reginald i should like for the curiosity of the thing to see the two animals together 
Mr. Spavin gave his orders, and presently Jim Hawkins, the queer-looking groom, brought out wild buffalo. The two horses were indeed exactly alike in all physical attributes, and the man who could have distinguished one from the other must have had a very keen eye. "'There they are, gents, as like as two peas, and if it weren't for a small splash of white on the inner side of Buffalo's left hawk, there's very few men in my stable could tell one from the other.' Victor Carrington, observing that Dale was talking to the horse-dealer, drew near the animal with the air of an interested stranger, and stooped to examine the white mark. It was a patch about as large as a crown-piece. "'Niagara seems a fine creature,' he said. "'Yes,' replied a groom. "'I don't think there's many better horses in the place than Niagara.' When Douglas Dale returned to the examination of the two horses, Victor Carrington drew Sir Reginald aside, unperceived by Dale. "'I want you to choose the horse Niagara for Lionel Dale,' he said, when they were beyond the hearing of Douglas. "'Why that horse in particular?' "'Never mind why,' returned Carrington impatiently. "'You can surely do as much as that to oblige me.' "'Be it so,' answered Sir Reginald, with assumed carelessness. "'The horse seems a good one.' There was a little more talk and consultation, and then Douglas Dale asked his cousin which horse he liked best among those they had seen. "'Well, upon my word, if you ask my opinion, I think there is no better horse than that bay they call Niagara, and if you and Spavin can agree as to price, you may settle the business without further hesitation.' Douglas Dale acted immediately upon the baronet's advice. He went into Mr. Spavin's little counting-house, and wrote a cheque for the price of the horse on the spot, much to that gentleman's satisfaction. While Douglas Dale was writing this cheque, Victor Carrington waited in the yard outside the counting-house. He took this opportunity of addressing Hawkins, the groom. "'I want a job done in your line,' he said, "'and I think you'd be just the man to manage it for me. Have you any spare time?' "'I've an hour or two now and then of a night after my work's over,' answered the man. "'At what time and where are you to be met with after your work?' "'Well, sir, my own home is too poor a place for a gentleman like you to come to, but if you don't object to a public, and a very respectable public too in its way, there's the goat and compasses, three doors down the little street as you'll see on your left as you leave this here yard walking towards London.' "'Yes, yes.' interrupted victor impatiently you are to be found at the goat and compasses i mostly am sir after nine o'clock of an evening summer and winter that will do exclaimed victor with a quick glance at the door of the counting-house i will see you at the goat and compasses to-night at nine hush eversleigh and his cousin were just emerging from the counting-house as victor carrington gave the groom a warning gesture mum's the word muttered the man Sir Reginald Eversleigh and Douglas Dale took their places in the phaeton and drove away. Victor Carrington arrived at half-past eight at the Goat and Compasses, a shabby little public-house in a shabby little street. Here he found Mr. Hawkins lounging in the bar, waiting for him, and beguiling the time by consumption of a glass of gin. "'There's no one in the parlour, sir,' said Hawkins, as he recognized Mr. Carrington, "'and if you'll step in there we shall be quite private.' "'I suppose there ain't no objection to this gent and me stepping into the parlour, is there, Maria?' Mr. Hawkins asked of a young lady in a very smart cap, who officiated as barmaid. "'Well, you ain't a parlour customer in general, Mr. Hawkins, 
but i suppose if the gent wants to speak to you there'll be no objection to your making free with the parlour promiscuous answered the damsel with supreme condescension and if the gent has any orders to give i'm ready to take em she added pertly victor carrington ordered a pint of brandy the parlour was a dingy little apartment very much the worse for stale tobacco smoke and adorned with gaudy racing prints here mr carrington seated himself and told his companion to take the place opposite him fill yourself a glass of brandy he said and mr hawkins was not slow to avail himself of the permission now i'm a man who does not care to beat about the bush my friend hawkins said victor so i'll come to business at once i've taken a fancy to that bay horse wild buffalo and i should like to have him but i'm not a rich man and i can't afford a high price for my fancy what i've been thinking hawkins is that with your help i might get wild buffalo a bargain well i should rather flatter myself you might governor answered the groom coolly an uncommon good bargain or an uncommon bad one according to the working out of circumstances but between friends supposing that you was me and supposing that i was you you know i wouldn't have em at no price no not if spavin sold em to you for nothing and threw you in a handsome pair of tops and a bit of pink gratis likewise mr hawkins had taken a second glass of brandy by this time and the brandy provided by victor carrington taken in conjunction with the gin purchased by himself was beginning to produce a lively effect upon his spirits the horse is a dangerous animal to handle then asked victor when you can ride a flash of lightning and hold that well in hand you may be able to ride wild buffalo governor answered the groom sententiously but till you've got your hand in with a flash of lightning i wouldn't recommend you to throw your leg across the buffalo come come remonstrated victor a good rider could manage the brute surely not the cove as drove a mail phaeton and pair in the skies and was chucked out of it which served him right not even that skylarking cove could hold in the buffalo he's got a mouth made of cast iron and there ain't a curb made work em how you will that's any more to him than a lady's bonnet ribbon he got a good name for his jumping as a steeplechaser but when he'd been the death of three jocks and two gentlemen riders folks began to get rather shy of him and his jumping and then captain chesterly come and planted him on my governor which more fool my governor to take him at any price says i and now sir i've stood your friend and give you an honest warning and perhaps it ain't going too far to say that i've saved your life in a manner of speaking so i hope you'll bear in mind that i'm a poor man with a family and that i can't afford to waste my time in giving good advice to strange gents for nothing victor carrington took out his purse and handed mr hawkins a sovereign a look of positive rapture mingled with the habitual cunning of the groom's countenance as he received this donation i call that handsome governor he exclaimed and i ain't above saying so take another glass of brandy hawkins thank you kindly sir i don't care if i do answered the groom and again he replenished his glass with the coarse and fiery spirit i've given you that sovereign because i believe you are an honest fellow said the surgeon but in spite of the bad character you have given the buffalo i should like to get him well i'm blessed exclaimed mr hawkins and you don't look like a horsey gent either governor i am not a horsey gent i don't want the buffalo for myself i want him for a hunting friend if you can get me the brute a dead bargain save for twenty pounds and can get a week's holiday to bring him down to my friend's place in the country 
I'll give you a five-pound note for your trouble. The eyes of Mr. Hawkins glittered with the greed of gold as Victor Carrington said this, but eager as he was to secure the tempting prize, he did not reply very quickly. Well, you see, Governor, I don't think Mr. Spavern would consent to sell the buffalo yet a while. He'd be afraid of mischief, you know. He's a very stiff in his Spavin, and he comes it uncommon bumptious about his character, and so on. I really don't think he'd sell the buffalo till he's broke, and the deuce knows how long it may take to break him. Oh, nonsense! Spavin would be glad to get rid of the beast, depend upon it. You've only got to say you want him for a friend of yours, a jockey, who'll break him in better than any of Spavin's people could do it. James Hawkins rubbed his chin thoughtfully. Well, perhaps if I put it in that way it might answer, he said, after a meditative pause. I think Spavin might sell him to a jock, where he would not part with him to a gentleman. I know he'd be uncommon glad to get rid of the brute. Very well, then, returned Victor Carrington. You manage matters well, and you'll be able to earn your fiver. Be sure you don't let Spavin think it's a gentleman who's sweet upon the horse. Do you think you are able to manage the business? The groom laid his finger on his nose and winked significantly. I've managed more difficult businesses than that, Governor, he said. When do you want the animal? Immediately. Could you make it convenient to slip down here tomorrow night, or shall I wait upon you at your house, Governor? I will come here tomorrow night at nine. Very good, Governor, in which case you shall hear news of Wild Buffalo, but all I hope is, when you do present him to your friend, you'll present the address card of a respectable undertaker at the same time. I am not afraid. As you please, sir. You are the individual what comes down with the dibs, and you are the individual what's entitled to make your choice. Victor Carrington saw that the brandy had by this time exercised a potent influence over Mr. Spavin's groom but he had full confidence in the man's power to do what he wanted done. James Hawkins was gifted with that low cunning, which peculiarly adapts a small villain for the service of a greater villain. At nine o'clock on the following evening, the two met again at the Goat and Compasses. This time the interview was very brief and businesslike. "'Have you succeeded?' asked Victor. "'I have, Governor, like one o'clock. Mr. Spavin will take five and twenty guineas from my friend the jock, but wouldn't sell the buffalo to a gentleman on no account. Here is the money, answered Victor, handing the groom five banknotes for five pounds each and twenty-five shillings in gold and silver. Have you asked for a holiday? No, Governor, because between you and me, I don't suppose I should get it if I did ask. I shall make so bold as to take it without asking. Sham ill and send my wife to say as I'm laid up in bed at home and can't come to work. "'Hawkins, you are a diplomatist,' exclaimed Victor. "'And now I'll make short work of my instructions. "'There's a bit of paper with the name of the place to which you're to take the animal, "'Frimley Common, Dorsetshire. "'You'll start tomorrow at daybreak and travel as quickly as you can "'without taking the spirit out of the horse. "'I want him to be fresh when he reaches my friend.' "'Mr. Hawkins gave a sinister laugh. "'Don't you be afraid of that, sir.' "'While Buffalo will be fresh enough, you may depend,' he said. "'I hope he may,' replied Carrington calmly. "'When you reach Frimley Common, it's little more than a village. "'Go to the best inn you find there, and wait till you either see me or hear from me. "'You understand?' "'Yes, Governor.' "'Good. And now, good night.' "'With this, Carrington left the goat and compasses, 
as he went out of the public house an elderly man in the dress of a mechanic who had been lounging in the bar followed him into the street and kept behind him until he entered hyde park to cross to the edgware road there the man fell back and left him he's going home i suppose muttered the man and there's nothing more for me to do to-night End of chapter twenty part two